BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is how language shapes how we think. So I didn't speak English until I was seven, and you probably can still hear the Canadian accent in me. (laughs) But I also speak Lithuanian and French. And there are many ways in which those two languages affect how I think about the world. But this whole idea of if you don't have a word for it, you can't actually imagine it linguistic relativity has kind of fallen out of favor, as there have been a lot of research to show that maybe it's not quite as robust as we thought it was. We also just put our son into a French immersion school, and it's been really interesting to watch how that has affected the way that he thinks and various other aspects of his life. So I wanted to talk to someone who could give us the cutting edge of research in this area, and I had long been following the work of Lyra Boroditsky. She's an associate professor of cognitive science at uh, UCSD in San Diego, but she also didn't speak English uh, until she was, well, probably somewhere around 12, according to her Wikipedia page. At that point, English was her fourth language. And so throughout the course of her scientific career, she has asked this question of, to what extent does the language that we speak shape the way that we think? Lyra Borditsky, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with the kind of origins of of the idea of linguistic relativity. So, you know, in my Psych 101 class, we were told about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Uh, Because I know that if I try to explain it, I'll get it completely wrong. Sure. Uh, Generally, the hypothesis is that the structures of particular languages guide how their speakers see the world, how they might reason, what they might pay attention to, how they might categorize things. And so by looking across languages and looking at the structures that exist uh, in particular languages, you can predict the habits of thought uh, of speakers of those languages. Yeah, so there's this famous example of, I believe, a a group of people named the Hopi or Hopi people. Uh, Hopi, yeah. 
Hopi, yeah, yeah, who did not have mass nouns. So nouns essentially like flour or beer, uh, which contain, you know, large amounts or, or, or more than one thing or, or, or not exactly a specific number of things, but rather a kind of mass amount. Uh, and in this particular uh, language, there, there are not words that, that adhere to the, that kind of idea. And so the question was, do they actually think about num- numeracy differently? Am I getting that sort of right? <laughs> Let me tell you uh, an example that um, has been tested uh, quite rigorously empirically, and it's about uh, Yucatec Mayan. This is work of uh, John Lucy. And in Yucatec, uh, there uh, is not uh, a distinction between math and count that works the same way that it does in English. So rather than um, in English, for example, uh, there's some things that we can count, like you can say one rock, two rocks, three rocks. Uh, but there are other things that seem like a mass, like sand, right? So you don't say one sand, two sands, three sands. Uh, uh, you would have to quantify it in some way, like you'd have to say one cup of sand or one pile of sand. You have to put some kind of unitizer on it. And so there's some languages that treat everything basically that way, that you have to unitize everything. And uh, it's essentially everything is treated as if it were a substance or a mass entity, and then it has to be put into units in order to be counted. And what John Lucy found was that, uh, in fact, in a, in a bunch of tests, speakers of Yucatec Maya were paying more attention to the substances out of which things were made and less to their individual unit properties, like the particular shape they happened to take, for example. So the language guided them to attend to the stuffness, the stuff that that things were made of more so than uh, the fact that there was an individual unit that was one or two or three. Yeah, and this this idea was really influential then, and, and a lot of people started to think if maybe that the cultural differences that you know we have between cultures might have a lot to do with language, and that in fact, you know, kind of the way we perceive the world could fundamentally be different in different languages. Yeah, the the popular idea is that different languages create different cognitive realities. And so within, within each uh, very rich, complex linguistic structure, there is a whole cognitive universe, a whole way of looking at the world. Uh, and when you speak a language and you grow up in a linguistic community, you live in that cognitive universe. And then kind of the pendulum swung the other way, as a number of studies were, you know, showed that, in fact, people who speak different languages, even people who speak languages that have sort of this mass count difference, uh, really perform pretty similarly when it comes to all kinds of non-linguistic tasks. Uh, really, the problem was the lack of evidence. So it wasn't so much that uh, there was strong counter evidence or strong evidence in any direction. There is mostly no evidence. Almost um, everything that people supposed about this topic was really just conjecture based on looking at language alone. So you would observe a pattern in a language, and then you would conjecture that people must think differently. But there would never be any evidence that was external to the language. You would never measure something about behavior directly. You would only just be saying, well, they talk differently, so they must think differently. So it was a very circular set of arguments. There was some early evidence that came back very equivocal. So, for example, there was some uh, work done by Eleanor Roche on color perception with the Dani in Papua New Guinea. And um, 
her data were partially supportive of linguistic relativity and partially not, but it was, you know, it was data from a small handful of people uh, in tasks that uh, were hard to calibrate for, for the conditions. And so people just kind of interpreted the lack of excitement in the data as a, as a, lack, of, uh, a lack of support. I should also note that there is, um, as we have learned more about how cognition actually works, it's been possible to refine the kinds of hypotheses that we can make and the kinds of hypotheses that would make sense. So if you don't know how the color perception system in the brain works at all, you can make really wild hypotheses about how humans could differ from one another. Like you could say, maybe these people don't even see color, and maybe you know you you can you can come up with all these wild things. But then once you learn uh, about the basic physiology of color perception, whether it's in humans or in other animals, that really greatly constrains the set of hypotheses that you can make. So now you know that there's a set of receptors in the retina that are sensitive to different wavelengths of light, and you know the the structure uh, of information processing that's going to happen in the brain and all the different steps. And so that allows you to constrain how much of an effect it would be, what kind of effect it could be. So you uh, you no longer formulate hypotheses that are impossible based on physics and physiology. And so you can ask questions, uh, empirical questions that actually make a lot more sense relative to what's cognitively possible. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, if we talk about the the uh, Papua New Guinea tribe, uh, you know, I believe the, the idea there was because they only have sort of two main words for color, sort of dark colors and light colors. The question was, do they see the full spectrum of, of colors? Am I, am I getting that right? Uh, Eleanor Rosh's question was whether their treatment of different colors would look the same or different from, say, speakers of English who have um, a larger set of basic color terms. Um, and so she set, set out a bunch of um, specific color memory tasks where she would show people color chips and then uh, show them ones that were either same or different, and they were either in the same linguistic category or a different linguistic category, say for English speakers. And she was looking at how confusable different colors were, how people would group colors into piles, things like that. And uh, when you look at that kind of data, if you're expecting the Dani to make no distinctions in their color perception that aren't in their language, you would be disappointed because, in fact, they uh, they make many more distinctions perceptually or they treat things a lot more continuously perceptually than just the two categories. But also, if you look at that data carefully, uh, they are different from English speakers in how they categorize colors and what they remember, same or different. And so you can look at that data and uh, find both evidence for general patterns uh, across humans and also evidence for differences across uh, cultural groups. So what got you interested in, you know, looking at this question? I was always interested in how humans come to be as smart and sophisticated as we are. So how is it that we build such complex knowledge? Uh, how is it that we, you know, we're these physical creatures, we get photons in our eyeballs, and we get pressure waves in our ear. And, you know, we get pressure on our skin, and we can flex our toes and bend our knees in just the right ratio to defy gravity and move around. And out of this very physical uh, existence and very physical set of interactions with the world, 
we end up with ideas about justice and truth and freedom and <laughs> principles and goals and love and time travel and imaginary numbers and we write symphonies and we play chess. <laughs> how, how, how does a mind that springs from this very, very simple physical creature come up with all of these extremely abstract ideas that are um, unrelated uh, to or un, you know, unperceivable in physical experience? And the more I thought about this question, the more it became clear that the answer had to be, um, in part, that these structures were built in language because language allows us to make new relationships between ideas, uh, build more and more complex structures iteratively out of information that we already have. And so I started looking at patterns uh, in metaphor, for example, following on some suggestions by George Lakoff and others. Um, when I did my, uh, I wrote uh, my first set of uh, findings on uh, metaphor in English, and I gave it to my graduate advisor at the time. This is when I was doing my PhD at Stanford, and he looked at the studies and he said, "You know, everything here seems fine, except um, if you're right that these metaphors are actually shaping how people think about time. That's what I was writing about. Then, if you found different metaphors in a different language, you would." have to suppose that people would think about time differently in that language. And um, then he said, well, we already know that language doesn't shape thought. We you know, established that in the 1970s. So there must be something wrong about this. You should go back and think about this some more. And, um, and I took that to heart and I thought, well, it could be that there's something wrong here, or it could be that we were premature in thinking that language doesn't shape thought. Maybe it does. And I learned uh, around that time about a particular difference uh, in time metaphors between English and Mandarin. And I thought, well, I'll just do this one experiment and find out and, uh, you know, settle, settle that small debate <laughs> with my one experiment. Uh, and then I can get back to studying metaphors and uh, thinking about how people build complex knowledge and uh, go on in my way. And so, uh, needless to say, uh, no interesting question can be answered with one experiment. And so you do one experiment, and that leads to yet more questions and more and more questions. And as um, science always does, you know, when you answer one question, you also open up 20 other new questions if you're working in an interesting area. And so that's, that's how I got into it. It wasn't my intention to uh, work specifically on this topic, but uh, there was no way for me to proceed on the thing that I wanted to work on without uh, clearing the brush, as I thought. And so this is my clearing the brush. And you, you know, you picked an incredibly opportune time, I think, to study this question, because I feel like over the last 10 years, at least, we've really become much more, at least in, in the US and, and in the Western world, cognizant of the way we speak about things. Um, so for example, I'll just take pronouns. Uh, and, and there's, you know, the younger generations seem to be uh, very much changing the way that pronouns are used. Uh, in fact, many times now you see people with email signatures or, um, you know, social media handles that actually explicitly state which pronouns they prefer to be called by. Uh, which 10 years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, was just not a thing, you know, and it was just taken for granted uh, that society somehow could assign a pronoun to someone. <laughs> uh, and, and now people are, are really taking it uh, as a part of a, a part of their identity that, you know, 
is something that they feel that they need to define themselves, not only to let the world know uh, how it is that they would like to be referred to, but also to acknowledge the existence of people that don't, uh, aren't easily categorized by gender pronouns. But before we get there, I kind of feel like we kind of need to start with this whole notion of, of metaphor, um, you know, at the core of your work. Uh, what, what, what is it that, you know, attracted you to metaphors? Is it, is it the fact that really they are a way of kind of bridging abstract thoughts? Uh, metaphors, or, you know, as we think of them in cognition, just analogies, allow you to build new knowledge out of knowledge that you already have by taking information that you may have learned from experience um, and making an analogy to some new domain. You can build structure in that new domain and then expand on it. And so it's almost like you're getting new knowledge for free, building it out of stuff, elements that you already have. Let me give you an example of how you could build. Um, an idea, um, an impossible idea that uh, I, just out of a, a little metaphor. So in English, we can talk about time as if it's a path that we travel. So we can say we're approaching the holidays or we're coming up on the deadline. Um, so there, time is a path and we're moving on it from the past to the future. Well, once you have that metaphor in place, once you've established that analogy, you can take it further and you can say, well, wait a second, if time is a path that I'm traveling, well, a path, I can travel in any direction and at whatever speed I want. So maybe I could start thinking about time as something I could travel in any direction, whatever speed I want. And all of a sudden, you've invented the idea of time travel. And time travel is not something that humans physically experienced, right? It's, you don't learn that idea because of an experience that you've had uh, with time travel. But you can construct it just with uh, by taking this metaphor and then exploring it in your mind, saying, okay, well, let's suppose that is how time works. Suppose time is a path. Let's, uh, let's extend it further. And when you look at the history of scientific discovery, so many discoveries start with a metaphor or an analogy where you take the history of our thinking about the atom, for example, it starts out as a solid ball and then it becomes a, a bowl of pudding with raisins in it. And then it becomes a solar system and it becomes like a cloud, you know, <laughs> and it's a, it's an evolution of metaphors. That's how, that's often how we develop knowledge and how we think about the brain and the mind uh, is the same. It's usually the most complex technology that exists at the time is our best metaphor for the mind. So it starts out as a clay tablet. Uh, and then it becomes the abacus, and then it becomes a telephone switchboard, it becomes a calculator, it becomes a computer, now it's the internet. And so uh, we're always taking, taking these analogies, extending them, trying to figure out how to use things that we already know to think about new, harder, more complex things that we don't yet understand. I mean, it seems like you're getting at like the very core of a creative idea is like trying to define a problem with a new metaphor. Yes, uh, a lot. A lot of the history of scientific revolution is the history of a metaphor revolution. You come up with a new frame, a new analogy, and that really reorganizes all of the information in the domain you're trying to think about. And none none of the metaphors um, need be exactly right. They just need to get you to the next step. They just need you need to get you to ask the next set of questions that will get you a new set of data that you will then say, okay, well, what's the best 
way now to organize this new set of data, given that given this is now what we know, and then you may come up with a new metaphor and, and keep going. And is it is it true that this is kind of unique to science, or or do we see the same kind of innovative spark led by metaphor in other domains? Oh, you see it everywhere. Uh, you see metaphor rife in uh, politics, in law, in uh, religion, in uh, you know, in any domain of human endeavor where people are trying to think about something new. I mean, most people would first associate metaphor with poetry, right? Uh, and most people think of metaphor as this kind of flourish, um, this like little decoration of language. Uh, I tend to think of it as something that's uh, actually incredibly productive and um, extremely integrated into normal language. Um, we don't, we kind of take for granted how much of the language that we speak is metaphorical. If you this is an, uh, an exercise I like to do with my students. I'll take, um, you know, any random front page of the New York Times and take the, the first article and say, okay, let's underline every metaphor that you can find in this article. And at first, when you start doing this, you think, well, maybe we'll find one or two in this article. But then very quickly, you realize, oh, it's going to be hard to find a sentence that doesn't contain a metaphor. And in fact, some sentences have many metaphors. And then by the time you've done the first couple of paragraphs, you start losing your faith and being able to tell what is or isn't a metaphor <laughs> because language is so fluid and we're constantly extending words to new contexts and determining whether something is sufficiently novel of a use to be a metaphor uh, becomes very hard. And so when you actually try to do the task of determining what are all the metaphors in this piece of text? You realize, oh my gosh, there's so much metaphor in normal everyday language. Bayer knows that behind every breakthrough are people who dared to move the world forward. It's human ingenuity that drives progress. Time and again, we keep doing the things that couldn't be done. The sky was the limit until we walked on the moon. It once took weeks to communicate before it took a fraction of a second. So what's next? Bayer is working with farmers to shape the future of agriculture, farms where all life grows together, tools that help plants and farmers use less water, and crops that can help raise communities out of poverty. What we can achieve is simply an extension of what we can imagine. We've been proving it for thousands of years. That's why Bayer is driven to find even better answers to today's best solutions. When we're brave enough to challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's science for a better life. And so do you think that there's like, are we teaching this ability to children or is it something that, you know, happens just by reading? What do you think? And, and is that important? I mean, I, from how you're describing it, it seems to me that, you know, if we're going to have, if we're going to solve some of the most complex world uh, problems that are facing us today, we need to have better and better metaphors so that we have more creative solutions, um, you know, and so that, that we can, we can solve these complex problems. So, you know, Tell us a little bit about how we kind of learn uh, or, or I guess, maybe accumulate a, a diversity of metaphors that we can then think through. Well, the diversity actually is what's so interesting, right? Um, because uh, a, lot, a lot of us use metaphors, but we're just using the ones that we inherited from other people. We're not necessarily thinking about what are all the other possible ways that one could talk about it or think about it. And so because we don't perceive the metaphors as being psychologically instrumental, we just take we just take the way we think about a complex issue as if it's reality, right? And if you 
uh, allow a diversity of metaphors. If you include people from lots of different backgrounds uh, or people from either other linguistic backgrounds that might have different ways of talking or just people with different life experiences that might be able to draw on different domains of knowledge, you are greatly improving your chances of being able to see both other approaches to a complex problem, but also see ways in which any particular metaphor might be misleading you, right? So metaphors are useful and they're inescapable, but they're also, each one of them is misleading in some way. Each one of them will highlight some information and diminish or make invisible other information. And so the more, the more different approaches you can put together, the more likely you are to make real progress and not get um, fooled by the particulars of any one frame. And this is also maybe where we can start to look towards the question of of how language can, you know, harm people. And and so, depending on the metaphor that you use, you can uh, essentially ha- have a biased way of thinking about a problem. So uh, my favorite example right now is immigration, and uh, I mean this is a very long-standing example. Very often, the way we talk about immigration is uh, using dehumanizing language and dehumanizing metaphors. Immigrants are often talked about as animals, as pests, as infestations. And this happens not just in extremely explicit metaphors, like if someone says, um, these people are animals, uh, but also in a lot more subtle ways that are harder to resist. So, for example, if someone says, we have people scurrying across the border, well, there are only certain kinds of things that scurry, right? So if you use that verb, you're implanting an idea that the people coming across the border are like other things that scurry, which are usually rodents or insects. But the person hearing the metaphor, you know, if, if, you, if you're of a frame of mind that you think it's not right to think of people as less than human, if someone said these people are animals, you might resist that and say that's wrong. I don't agree with that. But if you hear we have people scurrying across the border, you might not be in a position to resist it because it's not as overt. um, And yet the idea has still been implanted in your mind. And the more dehumanizing language we use, the more we think of others, people who are different from us as being somehow less than human, the easier it is to support policies that are dehumanizing, that don't treat people with dignity, that don't allow them basic human rights, and uh, basic human dignities, the easier it is to look the other way when terrible things are happening to other people. So I think it, it is something that can have tremendously complex and devastating consequences. So I want to get back to the the question of the gender pronouns, because uh, I think that, you know, for, for people of... of you know, for some people, it seems a kind of, you know, I see resistance to it. And, and, and there's a kind of like, well, you know, it just seems like it's take, been taken to the extreme. Um, and yet for others, it's become something that is incredibly important. So can you speak a little bit to why the kind of use of gendered pronouns is something that might, uh, might be harmful for someone and, and why we should pay attention to the kinds of pronouns that a person prefers to be called by? Well, let me, so let, let me put it in a broader context first. Languages differ in how they mark gender. And um, the way English marks gender is just one of a very, very large set of possibilities that you could do gender pronouns or not do gender pronouns. So some languages don't mark gender on pronouns at all. Some languages mark gender on pronouns, 
but a much larger set than what English has. So in English, in fact, almost all pronouns are already gender neutral. So first person pronouns like I, we, second person pronouns like you, uh, third person pronouns that are plural like they and them. Um, so in fact, we only mark gender on third person singular pronouns in English, the very restricted uh, use. Some languages do it on second person pronouns. So for example, in Hebrew, the word for you is gendered. Um, in Thai, the word for I is gendered. So you have lots of, lots of options of how to, how to do gender or how not to do gender. Uh, all of these are perfectly viable options across languages. There's not a one way that it has to be. <laughs> There's not one way that language has to work. Um, and so uh, what people are doing now is engaging in a, in a negotiation that's um, asking what is, what is the way that we want English to mark gender. The way it has come to mark gender is a ser- you know, result of a long series of accidents. Uh, uh, through history, and we can, as humans, decide we have power over this. Maybe it's not reflecting our current set of values, and maybe we want the language to reflect the values that we have. The property of language that is particularly difficult in the case of gender is that language is always going to be uh, a reduced version of reality. It's always going to be more categorical and simpler than the actual world that we live in, right? There's always going to be fewer words and things you want to talk about. There are always going to be fewer categories in language than uh, things in the world. And when language puts things, say, in two categories, man and woman, he and she, uh, it makes you believe that there is an equivalence within those categories. All the things that are called she are the same in some way, and all the things that are called he are the same are the same in some way. And they're also fundamentally different from one another. Now, the actual biological and social world is a lot more complex than that. So language is leading us, misleading us into thinking that things are simpler than they really are. Uh, and then, of course, some people who feel like they don't fit into either of those categories, or simply people who feel like that categorization isn't uh, the most relevant one for them. Uh, so if you're talking about a statistician doing an analysis, for example, uh, why is it relevant if that statistician is male or female, right? The, stati- the math is the math. And so uh, one could reasonably feel like this is a gratuitous mention of a un- completely unnecessary personal characteristic, right? Why don't you talk about whether I'm tall or short, whether I have uh, green eyes or brown eyes, uh, whether I like pasta or rice, <laughs> right? <laughs> These are also other personal characteristics that you could as well mention, and they would be equally relevant. And yet, for some reason, it's only this dimension of gender that's grammatically required in English. And so some people question why that would be. Um, and, you know, the, the dangerous possibility there is that if you mention gender unnecessarily in those kinds of cases it allows it opens the door for gender bias to creep in that you start thinking about um, an analysis a statistical analysis that uh, happens to have been done by a woman is somehow less important or less accurate or less rigorous than one that has been done by a man for example or uh, vice versa where the gender stereotypes are reversed and so uh, it's a case where languages simpler, more categorical than the world, and where uh, including the gender information may seem 
not just irrelevant, but potentially potentially misleading, that you're including information that's irrelevant and opens the door to bias. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of shifts towards this, you know, instead of talking about, you know, mankind, talk about humankind, uh, or, you know, a, a lot of people use the pronoun there uh, that is non-gender specific. And, you know, recently I was just uh, writing a, a, a piece and and I was using a whole bunch of examples and I realized that, you know, I could now just use the pronoun there uh, to talk about, whereas before I used to say his or her or his slash her. And, you know, for the first time I thought, well, okay, like this is not technically grammatically correct because <laughs> I'm talking in the singular, uh, but this is culturally correct. Well, let me, let, let, let me dispute that actually. It is grammatically correct in English. We've, uh, you find examples going back to Shakespeare of a singular indeterminate they. So taking an example like this, if um, I don't know who's going to call, who might call, I can tell you, um, if anyone calls, tell them I'm not mm-hmm. home. That's right. Yeah. No one hears that as ungrammatical. That is, that's a perfect use of a indeterminate singular they. And these are extremely common, frequent, normal, grammatically accepted examples in English. Um, and it's not, people talk about it as if it's a new thing, but you find it in Shakespeare. It's It's not a new thing in English. But if I said something like, yeah, like the scientist who found this study, they blah, 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 people would balk at that because they would say, no, you're talking about a specific scientist who, you know, the 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 um, assumption is must have a gender, which of course is where where that, that assumption is, could be incorrect in the sense that that person might not identify, you know, with one gender or, or another. But I think, I think when you have that kind of a specific noun, um, there is still maybe a, a discomfort with using they, or, or do you think that we are beyond that now? I think it's shifting. Uh, definitely some people will not hear that as strange. Some people are, uh, whether we, uh, the, the question of whether something is grammatical or not is a, is a question of, uh, acceptability. So, uh, how how likely are native speakers or fluent speakers to accept it? And acceptability shifts with use. So, the more frequently you hear something, the more acceptable it becomes. Languages are constantly changing, so we're constantly shifting what um, what is or isn't acceptable. So, I think definitely for a lot of people, that would uh, sound just fine. It would be acceptable, and a few people would walk at it. But as it becomes more frequent, that shift, that proportion is going to change. So yeah, and there's, and there's a lot of talk about all kinds of language things that, that have come up over the last 10 years that, as it seems that, that we are trending towards a more casual use of language. Um, is, is that true, first of all? And secondly, what do you think are the consequences of that? Do we have to worry about, um, you know, making sure that our language is, you know, somehow... Uh, you know, maintain that's more specific or more correct or more, I don't know. I mean, correct sounds, it's, it sounds, you know, like judgmental, but you know, is, is there, are we heading, you know, down a, a path that might lead us astray in, in terms of just our ability to, the way that we think, uh, or do you see us as, um, this is just a, you know, a, a, a natural evolution of language. Uh, language is always changing. And, uh, obviously, um, Languages are living things, and humans are constantly changing them to suit their particular needs. If languages didn't change, we wouldn't have so many. <laughs> the reason we have so many different languages is that the uh, ways of speaking kept drifting further and further apart until they were no longer mutually intelligible. And so now we have you know, 7,000 different languages that can't be mutually interpreted. 
And if you think about English, for example, the English of 400 years ago uh, sounds basically like a different language. Like you, you're almost having to learn another language uh, to understand what, um, say, Chaucer wrote um, you know, 500 years ago. So um, it is a completely normal thing for languages to change. And it's also a very, very common thing for older generations to fear that language is falling apart and soon language will cease to exist. Uh, this is people have been writing um uh, terrified thought pieces on how language is about to die off for uh, you know for thousands of years, and they're usually uh, the people who are about to kill language are teenagers. So teenagers are always about to ruin language, but there are also a couple of other culprits. So for a while, people thought the the invention of the printing press would ruin language because it would make books available to so many more people, and then all of these um, uneducated people would start participating in higher society, and isn't that going to ruin language? Um, the Norman invasion was supposed to ruin the English language. Uh, you know, all, all kinds of things were predicted as, um, as the end of language. Now people uh, are concerned about texting um, and uh, emojis. <laughs> and um, so all, all of these, uh, all of these things concern older generations. Um, this is true in every generation. And so whatever generation you're part of, there are people older than you that believe that you have ruined language. There's no perfect, you know, there, there's no perfect language that has ever existed. It's uh, always a living thing that's changing. I think there are some really wonderful things that we're seeing with new technology. So for example, with texting, one of the reasons that people treat it as such an alien new thing is there is a stylistic difference between spoken language and written language in English. So the way you're supposed to write as write long form in an essay, for example, most people don't talk that way at all. But the way people text is a lot more like the way they actually talk. So it's a written form of communication, but the structure of it is much more similar to spoken language than it is to long form written language. And it upsets uh, curmudgeons to see uh, spoken language written in this way. <laughs> they want it to be more formal. But there's nothing, uh, there, there's, uh, nothing actually terribly unusual in the way that people text. It's just very similar to the way that they talk. It's allowing many more people to communicate in written form, just informally. So I, I, I don't, I don't think there's uh, any special panic to have now that people haven't been already having for thousands of years. Like languages change, and and they should. They're living, uh, they're living things, uh, and there's no, there's no reason to suppose that um, the way that English was spoken 300 years ago is the perfect way, and should never change, and we should never add any more words or constructions, uh, that's just silly. We want to change everything else about our culture. We want new technologies and new foods and uh, uh, new TV shows and uh, language is just one of, one of the many cultural artifacts that we share. Okay, so one last question. If in a future we were actually able to connect our minds to computers in a way that didn't require uh, spoken language or written language, but rather we could somehow exchange thoughts. Would that worry you? <laughs> and what is that even like remotely possible? Well, we can already do that. It's, you don't have to go to the future. That's already possible. There are people who build brain computer interfaces where you can 
take electrical activity from the scalp, for example, and um, use that activity to control a mouse or uh, move things around on a screen. And further, you can take electrical activity from the scalp and attach it, say, to a part of a muscle effector on somebody else's arm. And then with the sheer power of your brain, you could control somebody else's arm movements. There are experiments where, for example, three primates might be doing a cooperative task together simply by manipulating their brains and with the manip- by manipulating the activity in their brains, they can move objects in virtual space where each one of them is controlling one dimension of the object movement. So this is not this is not the future. This is now. Uh, obviously, the precision and the complexity of the control will increase, but it's already perfectly possible to use just your brain to uh, at least communicate simple things to a machine or to another body. And yet, we still write poetry. You know, it, it freaks me out for other reasons. Uh, but no, I mean, it, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I am following the brain computer interface work closely. Uh, because of course, it can provide such promise for people who cannot communicate using language. Exactly. Um, and who, who cannot even, you know, move their own limbs. So yeah, I think it's I think it's really great. Right now, language it remains uh, the single best way that we have of communicating anything that's complex, right? So once in a while, I'll get an angry note from someone online that's written in all capitals, and it says something like, you are wrong. Uh, 99% of everything that's communicated is through body language, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, And I always think, well, why didn't you communicate that to me through body language then? <laughs> I mean, I could I could have known through body language that you were upset with me, but I wouldn't know why. Uh, language just allows us to communicate such uh, with such precision and um, so much complexity because there's so many um, iconic, learned, shared meanings that we have learned, all the words and all the ways of combining uh, words into structures. Um, there isn't another form of communication that we have that allows that same richness, precision, and expressivity. That's not to say that language is a perfect or even a good way of communicating. Uh, we make errors all the time. It's uh, extremely imprecise and ambiguous. Uh, it's, it's very far from a perfect way of communicating ideas, but it's uh, absolutely the best one we have. Yeah, I, I'm I'm reminded every day by my five year old at how you know ridiculous language is sometimes. Like today, we were you know I was helping him with his shirt, and he was telling me, you know these why these aren't buttons, and I said, well yes they are buttons, and he says no you can't press them, and nothing happens. <laughs> like, you're exactly right. Um, you know all the things we take for granted. Well, but that's a really interesting example where he has taken the later metaphorical extension of the use button. Uh, as a primary meaning, and then the earlier uh, use of the word button has now become the the unusual one for him. Whereas a hundred years ago, people would have had a very different experience of the language, right? As your experience uh, with the world changes, what you see as a primary or secondary use changes. Let me give you an example of of that in in science. So the word gravity. To, as, as in to mean the force of gravity, Newton's uh, discoveries. Of course, it wasn't called gravity before Newton discovered it. It wasn't called anything. He took the psychological term gravity, as in from gravitas, from something being 
serious or important um, and used it in to talk about physical gravity. Uh, but these days, if you ask uh, most people, they would think that it went in the other direction, that you start with physical gravity, and then from that, you get uh, psychological gravity. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, words words can shift uh, can shift their primary or secondary uh, senses depending on which one you encounter more often. Yeah, uh, one one more <laughs> anecdote. I remember, you know, I'm a singer, and so uh, you know, when I was uh, whenever my baby was small, I would sing scales all the time every day as I was warming up. And so he learned. He would say, "Mama, what's that?" And I'd say, "It's a scale." And then one time he came up to um, you know our bathroom, and I was standing on our scale. Uh, and he said, Mama, what's that? And I said, it's a scale. And he gave me like the hairy eyeball. <laughs> he was just like, it is not. And then he's saying a scale. I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. But that also brings me to this idea that people often say, well, you know, music can express things that language cannot. Um, and while that's true, uh, language can express things that music cannot, as you talked about, the specificity. I mean, I can... You know, I, I use this joke that I can play the violin till I'm blue in the face, but you still won't bring home a carton of milk. <laughs> so it's just it's it's an interesting kind of uh, sort of thing to think about how there there is both a large amount probably of 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 our cognitive world that is not accessible to us with language, but at the same time there's this reciprocal connection with the way that we think about the world that does have its roots in in how we speak and and how we think about language wise. Yeah, there are a lot of things that are either ineffable or hard hard to F. So Wittgenstein gives us an example where if I ask you how tall is Mount Kilimanjaro, that's an answer you can give me easily in language. If you just happen to know the exact number, you can tell me that. Um, but if I ask you, um, what does a clarinet sound like? Well, that's a lot harder to express in language. And unless someone already knows what a clarinet sounds like, it's going to be hard to explain to them what it sounds like in any useful way. Um, and so there's some things that our languages are well-suited to some kinds of information. Our languages are well-suited for carrying and other information, they're much less well-suited. But that also can differ across languages. We can develop better ways, more expressive ways of talking about different kinds of domains. So for example, English isn't very good at talking about smells. Uh, there are not a lot of dedicated smell terms. Um, and English speakers are kind of tend to disagree with one another about um, how to how to talk about or group smells. Um, but speakers of other languages, uh, for example, um, the Jahai in uh, Malaysia, this is the work of Asif Majid. Uh, they have a very developed smell vocabulary and they agree with each other about how to categorize smells and what to call them. And so what we used to think was in principle ineffable, we, you know, people would argue, well, smell is in, in principle going to be a, a, a poor, uh, a poor sense for talking about using language. Turns out that if you speak the right language, <laughs> you, you can talk about smells. You just have to develop the vocabulary. And that's what gets you trained as a sommelier. <laughs> exactly. Lyra Borditsky, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, 
Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis, and I'll see you next week. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wick donald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wick donald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last